Hello and welcome to the Bearded Tits podcast. I'm your host Jack Perks and this week we're doing something a little bit different. I'm going to be releasing a different podcast each day leading up to October the 24th which is the World Fish Migration Day. Now this is a one-day global celebration to create awareness on the importance of free-flowing rivers and migratory fish. Now in the description there'll be a link for World Fish Migration Day and also for my guest today which is Andrew Kerr of the Sustainable Eel Group. Now he's the chairman of this fantastic organisation and it's a Europe-wide conservation and science-led group working with partner bodies and individuals to accelerate the eel's recovery. And who doesn't love an eel? So I wanted to find out from Andrew why are eels so important, what are their threats and what can be done to help them? Well, thanks for joining me, Andrew. Hello, Jack. Great to be with you. It's been a while. I can't remember the last time we met face to face. It must have been... Um... What about when we did that uh, video together? Uh, how long ago was that? Oh, the, the, I think, well, that's the first time I met you, wasn't it? That was um, 2013, I think. I, I remember getting into your, your very nice car and thinking I'm, I'm soiling this with my presence, just sitting in <laughs> this lovely heated seats and I'm in with scruffs. But uh, I don't think yeah, I made still, too much of a mess. I still got it, it's now 17 years old. So <laughs> it's, uh, it's got another 17 years in it. <laughs> yeah, hopefully, Ho- hopefully we all have, which is all we can hope for, isn't it? Um, yeah. So I think we should start with who, who are SEG, who are the Sustainable Eel Group? We, we were founded at Fishmongers Hall um, 10 and a half years ago. And um, we created a governance structure so that um, we were totally international, but we would spread the governance load evenly between science, conservation, and commercial interests. And that that particular way of thinking has served us incredibly well because a multi-stakeholder, multinational approach is the only way to address enormous challenge that the European eel represents. Because it's not only a a UK trust so to speak is it? It's European wide isn't it? Yes I mean we we have our original company registered in London um, but we also have an ASBL registered in Brussels. These are both not-for-profit organisations working to very definite and defined objectives. And you mentioned uh, commercial there. So many people might find, find it strange that one of the things uh, that sex promote is eating eels, albeit in a sustainable fashion. So, so why does that work? Because obviously we don't eat pandas. So, so why do eels work? <laughs> That's a very, very topical joke. Yeah. Um, yes, I mean, the, the, um, the, when you actually challenge and explore how this has come about, Um, IUCN has a a grading system, measurement system, that has to apply to a a fish population that you measure in billions, like the eel, um, as well as to a a panda, you brought a panda up, but a population that you measure in in thousands or hundreds even. So it's it's a very, um, well, it can't fit everything perfectly. And of course, um, the IUCN doesn't say you can't eat, it, it, it just says, beware. Um, yeah. Yeah, th- this idea that because it's on the IUCN red list means they're saying you can't eat. That's, that's just not true. But the point you're really making is that we don't create a blank check 
for fisheries or for human consumption. You, we only support eel being eaten if the fish meets our SEG standard. And we're on our sixth iteration now, and it's been going for 10 years. So it's, it's not a blank check. It's very rigorously assessed and implemented and continuously improved. And we've now got supply chain coming all the way through from, from the fishery to the collecting station, to the eel farm, um, to the smokehouse, and then on to the consumer. So you have to have full traceability as well as, 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 as the catch method. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I think that makes, you know, you've got to be able to trace where it's come from and, and, and make sure it's all been above board. So yeah, completely, completely agree with that. And I, I think we've eaten eel together is it from the Y smokery at, I can't remember uh, where yeah. we had it, but it was, I think it was smoked eel, bacon and mash or something like that. But, um, yes, we did. Yeah. but for anyone who's never tried eel, uh, it might not sound the nicest thing to eat, but it is particularly smoked is gorgeous. It's one of my favorite fish to eat. They are um, a, a really nice tasting fish. But, it's, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, eating eel is important to me because it's part of the cultural link. But personally, I'm not a great, you know, uh, I enjoy smoked eel, yes. I particularly enjoy it when I eat it with smoked salmon and smoked trout at the same time. I do remember uh, an evening with the Gloucestershire Wildlife Trust in Berkeley Castle when I had that combination. And my, that was really good. But, uh, yeah. Actually, that point, I will labour for a second, because we don't realise how important eel was to our culture. You just wouldn't have survived a cold northern European wet winter without eating eel. And that was up until a couple of hundred years ago. And Is that everybody right? Ate it. Everybody ate it. Um, go back further, and um, the Doomsday Book, William the Conqueror and, and so on, you actually paid your taxes in eels at the time of doomsday. Wow. That's how important it was to human culture. And as we've engineered our rivers, you know, with 1.3 million barriers to fish migration in Europe, 25,000 hydropower stations, drains the vast majority of our wetlands, we have just lost that connection in parallel to that water engineering process. We've lost that relationship and eating eel and fishing for eel and the whole culture is, is very much what we're about. We don't want to lose our relationship with this incredibly important and totemic species. So you've mentioned, you know, they're culturally significant, but, but why are eels so important? I mean, they're, uh, you mentioned there were a lot of them before. They've obviously in decline now, and we'll talk a little bit about that in a second, but what makes the eel so important compared to say the, the gudgeon or something else? <laughs> okay. Um, well, I'm biased, so- we Yes, yeah, 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 no, I get that. <laughs> um, yeah, they're, they're all important in, in, in one sense. Um, uh, obviously the leader for science uh, in eel, inside SEG, is Willem Decker. And Willem is, one of the great authorities, if not the greatest authority on eel um, in Europe, on European eel. Now, he regularly refers to the idea that a couple of hundred years ago, eel was 50% by weight of all freshwater fish in Europe. 
Wow. And that's the scale of decline we're talking about. It's still an incredibly abundant fish 200 years later. Um, but it's in proportion to the lost habitat. So when WWF in the uh, global index a month ago reported um, freshwater fish as the most disrupted habitat on the planet, then it went on and said freshwater migratory fish in Europe are the all-time worst at a 93% decline. That is exactly the sort of level of decline that we see for the eel. It's shocking, so isn't it? It's shocking, yeah. Now with the eel story, we've had this gradual decline and then we had this dramatic acceleration, uh, 1980, 2010 a 30-year period of very steep decline, something like 15% a year. And um, it was that decline and the proxy indicator that is used is the glass eel index. And it was that decline that then led Willem um, to advise the European Commission and to the creation of the eel regulation. Now that's dated 2007 it immediately started to have an effect. And we can actually plot that effect from 2011 on the glass eel index. And we've now had a 10 year period of, not shoot straight up, but the same yeah. rate up as we had decline. Now we've got a hell of a long way to go, but it is now widely accepted that we have turned the corner but that's not an excuse to relax, you know, not, not to, or, or diminish our enthusiasm. We've got many decades to go before we get to a full recovery. We are recovering, but it's many decades to a, to a full recovery. So I remember you saying that this year has been particularly good. There were some uh, incredible sites on the seven, for example, weren't there? Yeah. Yeah, you, you've, um, you need to look at the, there are two indexes for glass eel. There's the all series, so that's the total value, and then there's the North Sea index. Now the North Sea index only represents a couple of percent of the fish, but they're at the northern edge of the range. So it's a useful check um, measure, but the real measure is the volume, the big volume, nine, yeah, the whole 100% volume. And that's what I'm talking about is continuing to rise. And there are 40 odd measurement points across Europe. And um, they do vary from year to year. Um, the, the oceanic currents do conspire to put more fish in one year in, in one great river than another. And, and we know that um, going back to the huge catches in France and Spain of 20, 30, 40 years ago, when you're talking of 2,000 tons being caught. 2,000 tons, that's 6 billion. That's a lot <laughs> of eels. Incredible. Yeah. So what, what we've had this year is uh, the events uh, and the climate uh, and the conditions all conspiring to make the Bristol Channel a sort of hot spot. So we had uh, warm water, and plenty of it. That's what really pulls them in, just at the right time. Um, very big tides, and uh, yeah, we had a, a couple of tides, 
and enormous numbers were filmed. Um, and anyone who's not seen the footage, go to the SEG website, <laughs> you can find it. And you'll see the, the volume and the scale that's just unimaginable. Um, something like 100 million, 75 to 100 million, must have been in the Bristol Channel in a two or three week period. That's quite, just quite extraordinary. Yeah, that is. And, it's, and it kind of gives you uh, almost cause for optimism. Is that too, too much of a dangerous word, hope? But it does kind of, uh, you know, dangerous words, but maybe it just gives yeah. you a bit of hope. Well, I think hope is a good word. And, and if yeah. you don't recharge your batteries with hope, we all just give up. So no, hope, optimism, yeah. Those are the things that make things happen. Um, despair and gloom doesn't really make anything happen. <laughs> no, it's a harder sell, isn't it? Um, you were... Let me on for that for a second, because that 7,500 million, that is uh, as a proportion of a total recruitment for the year, a typical year, it's about 1.4 billion. So you can see from that that the seven is the northernmost place where we get a huge concentration. But the bulk, 75% of that 1.4 billion, goes to the Bay of Biscay. Right, okay. So we are looking at the northern edge yeah. of this, this extraordinary annual recruitment. So you've mentioned the decline. What's, is there a main reason or is there a kind of cocktail of reasons for why eels have, have declined? Yeah, it's a cocktail, definitely. In, in, in contrast to marine, when you're very concentrating on fishing and fisheries and gear, um, the impact when you get into freshwater, there are so many human impacts. And yes, fishery is one and overfishing and the trafficking problem, which no doubt we'll come to in a moment. You know, the, these are very serious threats. But you've, you've also got to go back to the wetlands all being drained, the 1.3 million barriers to the river, to the rivers of Europe, um, the hydro turbines, hydropower turbines, the 25,000 of them, all those water pumps that are unscreened. So the combination of those are the really big killers. Um, we don't, the science isn't good enough to, to really be able to tell. But if I said it was the bigger half, I, I wouldn't be exaggerating. No, so they've uh, got a lot of things hitting them from different angles, which is always yeah. going to struggle a species mm -hmm. like those. And of course, eels have this extraordinary life cycle and it still holds a lot of mystery. And people talk about the Saragasso Sea, but as far as I'm aware, we, we don't know exactly where they breed there, do we? No, no, indeed. This mystery theme is, is, uh, sits very comfortably with eel. Um, the Sargasso Sea is as big as France, Germany and the UK combined. So it's not like... A, <laughs> it's not a swimming pool, is it? <laughs> not a swimming pool. Uh, research vessels go out there year in, year out, trying to find where the spot might be. And um, yeah, we, we don't know. The French have just come up with a, a study that they've done with the Japanese, um, looking at a mountain range, um, another thousand kilometers or so nearer <laughs> the European continental shelf. It's a theory, there's no proof yet. But yes, we're, we're, we're starting to look over bigger areas to try and find where the spot might be. It might of course be several spots. 
Yeah. Why yeah. do you need only be one? No, exactly. I mean, we, we, whenever you say the word migratory fish, everyone automatically thinks salmon. And mm. I think eels maybe sometimes get a little bit uh, overshadowed by that. But of course, eels, I think it's 3,700 miles or something like that something from, like from where we that. think they spawn. And they've got to do that once. They live for however long they go back again. It's, it's an incredible life cycle. And I'm fascinated by them. I think they're in, are absolutely incredible uh, creatures. You, you did mention trafficking, so I just wanted to bring that up. So uh, when people think of elvers, they might not think too much of a black market, but there's a massive... I, I've heard the words eel mafia, which sounds silly, but it's a thing, isn't it? Yeah, it, it is. It's a, it's a horrendous horrendous crime against society. Um, I guess when we started SEG, we knew there was some crime in, in the story. Um, yeah, we, we, we had no idea how much at, at that time. Um, and I remember um, over looking back over the 10, 11 years, where was the, the moment when the penny dropped that this was a massive crime? And um, it was a meeting at ZSL um, in 2015. And we'd invited Traffic along. That's the, uh, the, the organization specifically looking at uh, wildlife crime. And um, um, they came to us and reckoned that 20 tons, about 60 million eels, were being tra trafficked to Asia each year. And at that meeting, we also had the European commercial sector there. And they thought 20 tons was tiny. Traffic thought 20 tons was tiny. And then the, the commercial sector said, do you realize that's bigger than the entire amount we put into the eel farms? And literally, <laughs> the penny dropped. Yeah. That the scale of trafficking was greater than the scale of, of legal trade for, for, for commercial use and eating. And so then since then, more and more inquiries and we built up this picture, We've been out to Hong Kong, to China, um, been to the Philippines, been to Japan, huge investigations have gone on. Um, we've even had to send uh, people undercover into Beijing to look at the one place where the records are. And bit by bit, the jigsaw puzzle um, developed. And then at uh, uh, the major conference held by Europol, Soprona, the Spanish wildlife crime in in, in Madrid in 2018, then the words came out, a hundred tons annually was being illegally sent to Asia. That's 300 to 350 million glass eels. So as a percentage of the 1.4 billion that arrive, it was roughly 20, 25% of the entire annual arrival was illegally trafficked. To Asia, that's and bonkers. that's when, yeah, bonkers. That's when you know the world woke up to this idea that perhaps this was the greatest wildlife crime um, of a living creature on the planet. And what I mean, I guess it's hard to quantify it, but how much are they kind of worth? Like, what what's the the value? Are they quite a valuable species? I take it. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, it changes year to year. Yeah, the, yeah. People are taking money all the way through the supply chain. But very simply, if we say uh, an eel is caught in Europe by a fisherman and he gets 10 cents, by the time it lands 
in Hong Kong or, or Asia, it's worth a euro. And then by the time it's been grown on over a year or so in one of the 900 farms behind Hong Kong in China, it's worth 10 euros. So 10 cents to 10 euros is, is the incredible multiple that makes it so, so valuable. Wow. That is, is crazy, isn't it, when you think about that? And what I'll end on is uh, we'll try and shine some, some light at the end of the tunnel, but what is being done to, to help your appeals then? Because there are things we can do, aren't there? Okay. Uh, I'll come back to the, the other things, but as we just started on trafficking. Yeah, okay. Uh, the, the latest news, um, and you can find it on our SEG website, but for the last three, four years, something like a hundred arrests have been made. The first people have gone to prison for up to three years. Um, the gangs have been severely broken up and disrupted. The control agencies uh, running the show, particularly in France and Spain, have really acted. And um, we've started to see reports in the Asian press in Japan suggesting that in 2020, only five tons, 15 million or so, got through. Our own opinion is that's too optimistic. <laughs> yeah, we're sure more than that got through. But it must be something like 15 or 20% of what it was. So a massive, massive program has happened. It's had a huge effect. And um, yeah, there are more people going to prison. Uh, they're caught cases are all coming up and uh, we'll be publishing them as, as as we hear but you'd be a foolish person to traffic now you you really <laughs> would be a fool imagine that being sent to prison what what are you in for i'm in for murder what about you oh, i traffic some eels it's uh <laughs> it's, it's not it's not good well, is it you link it to your question of of you know hope and and what can you do for eel i mean Across Europe, thanks to the regulation, um, huge sums of money are being spent. Now, the great thing about the EU regulation is that it's, it encourages a country, it forces a country, if they're inside the EU, to have an eel management plan. And then you write that plan, and then you implement the bits that you think is going to make the greatest difference in your country. Now, some countries have done a great deal more than other countries, of course, um, but it is incredible that they've all signed up and action is taking. Um, for UK people, um, uh, the actions vary from something like Scotland, which just stops all eel fishing, but doesn't do a lot to enable their migration to the EA-led programs in England and Wales, um, where hundreds of barriers have either been screened or bypassed. Um, huge numbers of eel passes have gone in. Um, we've had incredible programs for eel and other fish. Perhaps the biggest single program of all is the River Severn under the heading of Shad, but five great big fish passes have gone in on the main abstractions between Gloucester, Worcester and on. And the first one of those opened two weeks ago and the next four open in, in, in the coming 12, 18 months or so. 
And this will enable many more of the 100 million glass hills that arrive up the Bristol Channel to actually get up river and into the headwaters, which is um, what we're trying to encourage. So yeah, unblocking migration pathways, but huge sums of money. Um, yeah, the, the water companies off what current four year plan, I think it's 80 million pounds being spent. So, so that's the water companies. And then you add and add and add and add. And then we've been doing this now since the eel regulation came in. And we've spent hundreds of millions of pounds. So for that good work to be undermined by traffickers who then make a ridiculous profit, they are stealing from society. Society has said, we want the eel protected. We want the culture and traditions maintained. Um, we're spending good money to do this. And um, yeah, it's, it's all happening. But keep your feet on the ground. You know, it took a long time for the eel population to collapse. And you're not going to see it rebuilt in a year. Even in a decade, it's a multi-decadal approach. And for SEG, we've got to bring everyone forward together, keep the urgency, keep the focus, um, and not get distracted by minor things like don't eat eel. That's that's almost childish. Stop trafficking, yes, but the human relationship with eel has to be protected and enhanced, and, and we need to reconnect to them. They're vital, they're wonderful. <laughs> well, I think on that note, I might just uh, bring the podcast to a, to a close, but no, I couldn't agree with you more. They are phenomenal creatures, and it's interesting as well. They're, they're amazing in their own right, and I always champion fish in their own right, but eels in particular seem to be a, a major part, or at least were a major part, of many other animals' food webs. I mean, in particular, I think otters and bitterns yeah, favoured yeah. eels. And obviously, if they're not around, then it's going to have a, a wider impact on maybe some of the, the star species that people want to see. So right. it's amazing how one eel, or well, Can eel as a species, right. impacts everything. I think they're still, they're still very abundant. Yeah. They're just nothing like what they were. No. Um, but of course... What then happens is those predators all want to eat something. So the pressure gets put on to other fish and you upset the, 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 the historic balances. And how those historic balances are upset, well, I, I'm not enough of an ecologist to really know, but I can quickly relate to the idea of, of food chains being disrupted. There's going to be some uh, some difference there, certainly, isn't there? Yeah. Well, look, Andrew, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, as always. I'm always happy to natter about eels with you, so it's good to see you again, and I'm sure our paths will cross at some point. Yeah. Keep up your good work. Um, yeah. The, the film footage you keep producing is, is just amazing and very, very powerful at, at connecting us to the freshwater, the hidden mysteries of the freshwater fish. So thank you too, Jack. No, it's a, it's a, I, and whenever I'm in the water, if I see an eel, that's a good day because I don't see them that regularly. But when I do see one, it's always like, that's great. That's, that kind of warms my heart a little bit. So take care, Andrew. Take care. Thanks, Jack.
That was Andrew Kerr of the Sustainable Eel Group. So if you want to find out more about them, it's sustainableeelgroup.org and that's got links to the videos Andrew mentioned and loads more information about what that organisation does. Now don't forget, on the 24th of October is World Fish Migration Day and leading up to that and on the day, there's going to be loads of fishy related content from all over the world. Now you're best positioned to see this from the World Fish Migration Day website or of course you can follow them on Twitter and Facebook with all the links to those on worldfishmigrationday.com. Hopefully you've enjoyed today's episode and you catch me tomorrow. I'm going to be talking to Emily Cooper from the Rivers Trust as we talk a little bit about this umbrella organisation and how the Rivers Trust movements came to be and what they do for UK river systems. This has been the Bearded Tits podcast. I've been Jack Perks and I'll see you tomorrow. Cheers. <laughs>